I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And this week, we explore the Senate confirmation hearings for Judge Neil Gorsuch, President Donald Trump's nominee to replace Justice Antonin Scalia on the U.S. Supreme Court. What do the hearings tell us about the future of the Constitution and the court? Joining me to discuss this fascinating, crucial, and important constitutional question are two of America's leading constitutional commentators. Michael Ramsey, our returning champion, is the Hugh and Hazel Darling Foundation Professor of Law and Director of International and Comparative Law Programs at the University of San Diego School of Law. And I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast Eric Siegel, the Kathy and Lawrence Ash Professor of Law at the Georgia State University School of Law. Mike, Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having us. Thanks, Jeff. Happy to be here. Wonderful. So, Mike, you signed a law professor's brief supporting Judge Gorsuch. I, we've heard his two days of testimony. I want you to tell me first what uh, vision uh, of the Constitution you feel emerged from his hearings. Uh, he said he was an originalist. Uh, what does that mean? And in particular, were you persuaded by his efforts to answer questions by Senate Democrats pressing him on particular cases like Brown versus Board of Education and others that they said were hard to reconcile with original understanding. What kind of originalist emerged from the Judge Gorsuch that you heard testify in these hearings? Well, I think the the first general point on uh, Judge Gorsuch's originalism is that uh, he, he sees it as a, um, a, as a rule of law-based idea um, in which he um, uses originalism to find something that is outside of the judge's own policy preferences, um, an, an objective standard that, uh, that guides the judge to, uh, to reach a conclusion which, which may, as he said uh, a number of times, be different from what the judge would really prefer as a policy outcome. But he sees the role of the judge as being uh, quite different from the role of a policymaker, uh, and, and he thinks originalism is, is, a, is a way uh, to get there. I, I think that um, one thing about uh, that I would like to say about originalism, I guess, is that uh, it, it's great that it's been uh, it's gotten so much publicity and is a result of these hearings. Um, but I think there is quite a bit of misunderstanding uh, of it. And, and I think that uh, indeed it, it would probably be better if we talked about just applying uh, the text of the Constitution uh, as it was written and understood by the people who uh, who wrote it and uh, and adopted it. And you can give it the, that this phrase originalism if you want, uh, and and people have. Um, but I think in a way that makes this this approach seem more exotic than it really is. Um, in fact, that's typically what we do when we're talking about statutes. Uh, we talk about um, what did Congress uh, understand that it was doing, what did Congress mean to do, and what text did it actually adopt, and what is the meaning of the words of the text. That's the conventional approach to statutory interpretation, and and I think all that um, that. Judge Gorsuch and other supporters of originalism uh, are saying is that a similar approach should um, be uh, used for the Constitution. Uh, now, the the Democrats in, in questioning him uh, expressed concern, I think, that this would lead uh, to some um, uh, unfortunate and, and even absurd results. 
And I, I think he did a good job to the extent that he engaged this at all. I think he, he did a good, a, a good job of explaining that that's, that's not really true. I think most of their, um, most of their hypotheticals uh, were, were not really especially useful in, in the sense of getting at what originalism, originalists really believe. I think there are some hard questions that you can pose to originalists, but I don't, I don't think, unfortunately, I don't think those came out that much in the hearing. Uh, and I think, unsurprisingly, to the extent they did, uh, Judge Gorsuch was careful to not answer them. Uh, but I think that it, he, what he did strike me as uh, a person who was very much in, in the mainstream uh, of um, um, center-right uh, conservative uh, originalist thinking. Uh, he's, he's not some kind of an outlier who has a very unusual view uh, of originalism that would lead to some very strange results uh, were he to be confirmed. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Eric, first of all, just to t tell us where you stand, you sent a very interesting tweet about what Democrats should do about Judge Gorsuch. So quickly tell us what your position is and then tell me whether you found his answers on originalism Convincing? Did the Democrats uh, uh, pose any tough questions that he failed to answer? In particular, were you persuaded by his answers about Brown? And what was your takeaway from this extensive discussion about constitutional originalism? Uh, my position is today the Democrats should unanimously confirm him. He is obviously qualified to be on the Supreme Court. I would have been happy with the Democrats not showing up for the hearing in protest of the majority leader's breaking of the Supreme Court confirmation process by not allowing President Obama his nominee for the entire last year of his presidency. But once the Democrats showed up and once we went through the motions of a hearing, there can be no debate that Judge Gorsuch does, he has the temperament, the background, the, the politeness, if you will, um, the judgment to be a Supreme Court justice. Uh, so I, I think at this point, the Democrats should obviously vote for him and save whatever, um, you know, ammunition they have for the next nominee. I agree with Mike about one thing, which is that originalism is a very misunderstood concept. So, and, that, and I think that's where Mike and I will probably end up uh, agreeing and go no further. And these hearings have made it much, much worse. So I'm going to quote uh, Judge Gorsuch. Uh, he said, and I and during these hearings, and I quote, that what he thinks originalism is, what judges ought to do is, quote, strive to understand what the words on the page mean, not import words that come from us, but apply what you, the people's representatives, the lawmakers have done. Of course, judges should try to understand what the words on the page mean, but they can't do that in hard constitutional cases because the words in the Constitution are too vague, too cryptic, and have histories that are too contested to figure out, just to give a few examples, what should be the appropriate balance between corporation speech rights and the government's interest in fighting corruption. You can read the text and history until the cows come home, you won't get an answer to that question. The relationship between gun rights, if they exist at all, and gun safety will not be found by reading the words of the Constitution. Figuring out the appropriate reach of Congress's power to regulate commerce among the states, there is no answer to that in the history or text of the Constitution. Affirmative action, abortion, and so on and so forth. What originalism really is today, and I do not put Mike in this category. Mike is one of the most thoughtful academic scholars on this topic. But in the political marketplace, at these hearings, uh, and other law professors who are less thoughtful than Mike, what originalism has become is a political label 
where judges will claim to be doing something other than imposing their own values. But if you look at the jurisprudence of Justices Scalia and Thomas in areas of affirmative action and takings and speech and religion and other places, you will see, anybody will see, that they impose their values just like no more, no less than Justice Kennedy or Brennan or Marshall. So the, my, just the, the bottom line thing I want to I want to say is originalism, as conceived by Judge Gorsuch or Scalia or Thomas, does not tell us how to decide hard cases. It cannot perform that role. It has never performed that role. And my hope would be we would stop pretending it could perform that role. Thanks so much for that. So this great exchange kind of prefigured something the Democrats hoped, which was to have a constitutional seminar about Justice Scalia as a faithless originalist, where he had allowed uh, results that clashed with original understanding um, to hold sway. I, I, my sense from both of your answers is that Democrats were not able to really pin down Judge Gorsuch on any of those points. And we're not going to do that in the podcast either, but I want to take one more beat on this because it's so important for listeners to make up their own minds about whether you think that the leading originalists, uh, Justice Scalia and now Judge Gorsuch, are consistent. Mike, I just want to focus on this Brown question, and I, it's a little wonky and technical, but I'd like you both to debate it. So here's how I'm going to put it. Judge Gorsuch in his hearing said, Senator, uh, speaking to Blumenthal, Brown versus Board of Education corrected an erroneous decision and vindicated a dissent by the first Justice Harlan and Plessy, where he correctly identified that separate uh, advantage to one race can never be equal. And Gorsuch said that by overturning that uh, Plessy decision, Brown was consistent with original understanding. The counterargument is that the framers of the 14th Amendment in 1866 said explicitly that it would not affect segregated schools, that it only applied to civil rights, not political or social rights, although they viewed the right to be on trains um, as arguably a civil right. They did not view the right to attend public schools as a civil right. And therefore, Michael McConnell, the leading scholar of originalism, concedes that if you're going to ask what the folks thought just in 1866 or when the amendment was ratified in 18. 68, you'd have to say that Brown was wrong. McConnell says that by 1875, things may have been different, uh, but that's not the position of a strict originalist. So, Mike, given that complicated history and the fact that the views of the people and of Congress seem to have shifted between 1866 and 1875 about whether or not the right to go to schools was a civil right, why do you believe that Brown is consistent with the original understanding? Um, well, first of all, I, I hope I get a chance at some point to respond to some of the things that uh, that Eric said, which I think were very interesting and, and are very important questions about originalism. I think uh, one problem that the hearings had and that, that, uh, that I think perhaps it was a necessary strategy, I think, by the Democrats because they couldn't get Gorsuch to, to Judge Gorsuch to answer questions um, about uh, more um, – current topics, which is understandable. That, that's the right way to approach as a, as a nominee. But uh, we got off on these discussions of, of what really are sort of, uh, to my mind, academic, esoteric academic arguments about issues like whether Brown was rightly decided that would never come before the court as it currently stands in any kind of a case that you can imagine. But just to answer your question um, straight up, I, I do believe that, um, that the outcome in Brown was correct as a matter of uh, original meaning, as uh, Judge Gorsuch said in the hearing. Um, and I think part of the answer is that um, it, it's important to understand that we're not looking as in, in 
the, the current way that we think about originalism and consistent with what I said about early in my previous answer about um, looking for the text, we, we're, we're not looking strictly for what the intent of the framers is. That It's very difficult to understand, to, to determine what the subjective intent of a large group of people is. Um, so the best way to think about this is we're trying to understand, as Judge, Judge Gorsuch said, um, the meaning of the text. And the text uh, calls um, uh, for equality um, and for, uh, for equal protection. Um, and it's very hard, I think, to say um, that we have... Uh, uh, equal protection, equal treatment um, when uh, you, you have a, a, a segregated system that's clearly designed and is unquestionably designed um, to, uh, um, to oppress one race um, and to boost another race um, at their expense. And that's what um, Justice Harlan said in dissent in Plessy. Um, he, he didn't make technical dis discuss discussions about um, whether it was on trains or in schools or so forth. He said uh, quite clearly and plainly that the Constitution is colorblind. Um, and I think er, the uh, modern originalism takes that uh, as the correct answer. If you look at originalist scholarship uh, really across the board, uh, you will see that um, originalists do not uh, find this to be a difficult issue. Um, they, they all line up on the same side. And so I don't think that this actually is... Um, uh, the most useful way to approach originalism to try to pick out um, sort of gotcha examples um, where originalism would lead to an absurd result. I think the, the better way uh, to argue is does originalism give you the right answers for current controversies? That is, um, does it make sense um, to rely on um, the, the writings and the, and the wisdom of, past, of a past generation that, and their enactments, uh, or should we be having modern judges um, decide according to the judges, modern judges' own political preferences, policy preferences, I'm not suggesting that they are um, political in the sense of following party line, but are we asking modern judges to say, what do you think is the best current policy? Are we asking about modern judges to say, what do you think the best way to understand the meaning of words written and enacted in the past should be? And I think that's a fair um, uh, question about what we want our judges to be doing. But I think that's the question we want to have on the table. Thank you so much for that. So I'm going to now throw it to Eric. Uh, and in my senator mode, I'll ask, do you believe that the question of whether Brown is consistent with original understanding as an academic or esoteric question? Or is it the very uh, test of the legitimacy of the theory? Uh, and given the fact that Justice Harlan in Plessy didn't say that the Constitution is colorblind across the board, but only with respect to civil rights, not political or social rights, uh, that all citizens are equal before the law, isn't it relevant to ask what the framers thought were civil rights? And, and finally, if we're just looking at the text, then why was Justice Scalia correct in the Virginia Military Institute decision to say that women were not covered by the Equal Protection Clause since the text of Section 1 doesn't distinguish between men and women. So, Eric, with that leading question, I'm going to ask you, do, do you think Brown was consistent with original understanding, and are you persuaded by, by Mike's response? I think much too much has been made of the question whether or not Brown is consistent with originalism, and I think that for several reasons. First of all, no theory of constitutional interpretation is perfect. I understand that Brown, you know, is a bellwether case, an incredibly important case, but even if Brown is not consistent with originalism, 
I think an originalist could say that Brown is sui generis, that our history of race is different from everything else. And I, I think much too much has been made about it. I don't agree with Mike about how he analyzes Brown. I think it is unbelievably clear that the people who wrote equal protection of the laws and voted for equal protection of the laws and ratified that provision did not think that segregated schools ran afoul of that principle. I think the only true evidence of original meaning is subjective intent. And I'm not the only person who thinks that. A lot of well-known originalists think that, or at least the best indication of original meaning is in fact subjective intent. But I think we should move off of this conversation because it is playing the, the, the originalist game to some degree. Whatever the state of originalism is regarding Brown, I, I kind of want to repeat what I said before. And I think Mike agrees with this. Our hard contemporary disputes in constitutional law, whether they be affirmative action or gun control or the president pressing a button and killing an American citizen having lunch in Yemen, even though we know he's a terrible, awful terrorist, but no judge has ever said that, whether the president has that power. None of these questions, none of these questions can be persuasively resolved by looking at original meaning. Now, is original meaning irrelevant? I know nobody. I am the most anti-originalist person there is. In the last two months, I've called it a myth, a sham. Even I think original meaning is relevant. It's something to be looked at, and it's something to use to give us intergenerational identity as Americans. But it will not and cannot resolve those kinds of hard questions, and we should stop pretending that they do. Now, I'll say with this one exception to that. Originalism could work if we had an incredibly strong presumption of constitutional validity. And let me just spend 30 seconds on that because I think it's really important. If our position was whenever a plaintiff comes into federal court or state court and claims the government is acting in violation of the Constitution, that plaintiff has a very heavy burden of proof to show either the text of the Constitution or unbelievably clear and uncontested history behind the Constitution prevents the government from taking that action, then originalism could work. And I have to say, Jeff, I wrote a book that suggests that's my preferred philosophy of constitutional law, incredibly strong deference to the elected branches. But we have never had a Supreme Court justice ever who consistently took that position. Holmes came close, Frankfurter may be close, but, but certainly not Scalia or Thomas, who have voted to strike down a bevy of state and federal laws that were not inconsistent with text or history. So. Originalism without deference is absurd, is the headline I'd like to put on that. The final thing about women and the Equal Protection Clause is women didn't get the right to vote, you know, to 1919. Justice Scalia, before he passed, was fond of saying in public that women were not a protected group under the Equal Protection Clause. And I would say that his history is 100% correct on that, but that's not what they wrote. What they wrote is everybody is entitled to equal protection of the law. And Scalia's blind spot there is simply another indication of Scalia's selective original. All right. Well, gentlemen, I throw in the towel about the relevance of Brown versus original uh, understanding, um, and maybe that's why the Senate didn't press it either, and maybe that's why the Senate Democrats' efforts to make these hearings a referendum on originalism didn't succeed. I want to turn back like a laser to the Gorsuch hearings themselves, not to theories of constitutional interpretation. And I'm going to ask, um, Mike, 
What was the most illuminating and surprising moment of the hearing for you? Uh, well, uh, I, I guess I'm going to have to fight the hypothetical here or fight the question and say that I, I didn't find any part of the hearings especially illuminating or surprising. Uh, I, I think it's it's sort of a, a ritual dance uh, that that we uh, come to expect uh, that the uh, the senators um, ask questions trying to uh, trap the nominee and the nominee deflects them and says that they can't say anything about uh, pending cases or cases that could be pending or issues that could ever imaginably come up, imaginably come up in the real world. And then the senators complain that the, the justices are not, um, that the nominees are, are not responding specifically. Um, and that's, that's just the nature of the process that we have. Um, I, I think that uh, what, what, what stood out in in this process is that um, that Judge Gorsuch is is, is very adept at at, at at that dance and uh, in or or a more positive way I'm supposed to say it is that it, and I think this is entirely fair that that he he displayed very much the judicial temperament uh, in the hearings and I thought that uh, that spoke well for him uh, and it spoke well in 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 the sense for the hearings I don't mean to be too negative in the sense that. Uh, um, I think that the, the hearings um, test that to an extent, and I think he he responded well to it. But I, I don't know that I would find um, anything within the hearings themselves uh, all, all that surprising. But perhaps just to continue with the, the theme of the discussion we've been having, if I if I had to pick one thing, it's it's the extent to which originalism has become something that's being um, debated not just um, in the hearings themselves, um, although it has played quite a role in the hearings with senators. Uh, making a number of questions about how would originalism handle this particular issue, but also how it has come out um, in the popular media, um, even to the extent that of, of an article in Cosmopolitan magazine, uh, which, by the way, I don't typically read, but uh, someone pointed it to me, uh, 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 attacking originalism. But the fact that originalism simply there is on the uh, um, it, it's, it's in the mind of um, the popular audience. Uh, and I think that's uh, that's really quite significant. Um, I, I just like to could, could I just just maybe take um, 30 seconds here to um, comment on a couple of things that that Eric has said about originalism um, very quickly. Um, I think point number one, um, originalism does not purport to be able to answer every single question uh, about constitutional interpretation or about constitutional issues that come up today. All originalism says is um, that when a determinate answer can be found uh, as to what the, um, the, the, the words that were written in the Constitution meant at the time uh, that they were written, um, that, that judges should follow that. Um, it, it's agnostic as to how many times that can be decisive, um, and it doesn't necessarily have a theory uh, about how judges should proceed um, when the original meaning is indeterminate. Um, but it does believe um, that when the individual meaning, original meaning is determinate, judges should follow it, um, and that in, at least in a significant category of cases, um, it will be determined. So you can always pick out examples where originalism is not going to give you an answer, but I think it will give an answer um, in, in a, a good number of cases. And then the second point, real quickly, is that it, it's easy to say that originalist judges uh, follow their policy preferences and, and camouflage them with originalism. Uh, and there may well be examples of that happening because judges are actually, after all, human like the rest of us. Um, but I think, for example, if you look at Justice Scalia's record, you will see uh, numerous situations in which Justice Scalia uh, 
voted for uh, in favor of uh, criminal defendants, uh, in favor even of terrorists, um, where you could not imagine um, that he actually favored um, the outcome or um, the, the winning party uh, as, as a policy preference. But he felt uh, driven to that result um, by his commitment to originalism. Indeed, often he was voting against um, fellow conservatives who were less originalist than him on the court. So uh, I, I think we need to be careful uh, saying that um, it, it is never the case um, that, uh, that originalism can guide, guide judges. I think it can. Um, and if it's not doing it, it's just because um, they're not being faithful originalists. Jeff, okay, I no, if, I, if, if, if I may, thank you so much for that. And I'm delighted by this debate about originalism, which is important. <clears throat> but I do want to focus this podcast on the Gorsuch confirmation hearings because uh, that is our task at hand. Um, I will recommend to listeners, there's a lot you can read about this great debate, and I think we're going to have a future podcast about originalism. Um, but uh, you might start with Justice Scalia's A Matter of Interpretation. Um, on the Brown question, you can read Michael McConnell's great article, Originalism and the Desegregation Decisions. And for examples of liberal originalists, you can read Jack Balkin's Living Originalism and Akhil Amar's America, a Constitution. Um, so you can indeed... Uh, you, you, I'd, I'd like you, Eric, actually to just focus on the Gorsuch hearings, when I asked for the most surprising or illuminating moment, I was thinking of that great moment in the Breyer hearings where he had that exchange about antitrust with Senator Metzenbaum that proved accurately to predict his rather conservative views about antitrust on the Supreme Court. What in the Gorsuch confirmation hearings did you find, if not surprising, at least most illuminating? And what do you think most revealed the specific kind of originalist or judge that Judge Gorsuch is likely to be? Well, I found nothing illuminating other than he's a very patient man, and 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 I think and his temperament seems relatively judicial, although I thought he was smug at times. Um, Jeff, I have to, I just have to get in the record that I think these hearings are a sham. They are terrible for the American people, uh, and mostly that when he says, and as has every nominee since Justice Ginsburg including Justice Ginsburg, when nominees say they can't talk about issues because it may, they may come before the court, that is absurd nonsense. No senator is ever asking a nominee to make any promises or any pledges, and they should not ask to make any promises or pledges. But the idea that Judge Gorsuch cannot reveal, reveal his views today on abortion, affirmative action, and let's say the Second Amendment, because those kinds of cases might come before him in the future, is simply absurd. Of course he's thought about these issues. In fact, he could have written a law review article on these issues last week, and, and many nominees have done exactly that. And, and, Chuck, and Charles Schumer once said to Justice Roberts I, in his nomination hearings, I don't understand. You guys can talk about any legal issue you want before you walk in this door. But in the very place that it's most important that you talk about these issues, you take the position that you can't. And that is, in fact, absurd. And there's no reason Gorsuch couldn't say something like, I've thought about abortion a lot. I don't think I would have decided the way Roe decided it. But Roe is settled law. I will treat it as settled law. I, I, I think that, that I have to have a case in front of me to make, you know, to be sure, but my current feeling is X and my current feeling is Y. And there'd be nothing inappropriate about that. Now, having said that, I'm going to answer your question. To me, the most illuminating part of this hearing was the Roe discussion. Because, um, and I don't pretend to be a psychologist or an expert in body language, but you can watch Gorsuch talk about Roe, and I think you can you can maybe, maybe uh, interpret two things. He's uncomfortable with it. 
We know from his book the way he feels about life in general, and he, I think he views a fetus as life. Um, but I think he also feels very strongly about precedent. And if I had to bet, and I do play poker occasionally, I would bet that he will never vote to overturn Roe versus Wade uh, or Casey on the grounds of, of adhering to precedent. I don't think he wants to be the person or the vote to do that. And I think that came across fairly clearly, which is not to say he won't change his mind. Human beings do, just as Kennedy did change his mind on abortion. But my best guess is he is uncomfortable with overturning such a well-settled precedent and if anything was illuminating, other than his ability to withstand incredibly silly questions by the senators, uh, it was his, um, I think, lip service to the idea that Roe is settled law and the implicit idea that he won't vote to overturn. Thank you so much for that, Mike. That's a very specific and interesting claim. Do you agree with Eric that, based on his answers, uh, Judge Gorsuch might be hesitant to overturn Roe or not? Uh, I, I was not able to read uh, anything uh, that specific into what he said. I, I think he was very cautious, uh, and he said that he would treat Roe as precedent, uh, but he did not endorse the idea that it was, uh, as some senators tried to lead him to do, that it was, quote-unquote, super precedent. He simply said that he would treat it as precedent, um, and, of course, precedent is treated uh, – well, it's treated the way the courts treat precedent generally, uh, which means they adhere to it um, uh, steadfastly unless they don't. <laughs> uh, and uh, the, the Supreme Court uh, has no uh, theory of precedent, no, no law of precedent. Um, and uh, to say we will treat something as precedent doesn't mean a great deal. And I think Someone who chooses his words as carefully as Judge Gorsuch does um, understands that, and uh, that's what's going on there. Uh, of course, he he wants to. Um, they're, they're, he doesn't want to lean too heavily one way or the other. He doesn't want to um, concern people that want Roe overturned any more than he wants to upset people who want it preserved. Um, so, uh, but I think that um, the, the, let me let me say a word about um, the the propriety of of being cautious like that. I, I agree that uh, the, the nominees are not under any obligation uh, to refrain from at least sort of general discussions about, um, about existing law of that nature. But I think it's a good idea. Um, and I think it's a good idea because um, when you make a, uh, a public representation of what your views are, um, I think it entrenches your views um, to an extent. Of course, we can all confess error. We can all say, oh, I, I, I thought I was wrong before. I've thought about this and now I'm right. Um, but human nature is not to do that. Human nature is to say, uh, I have always believed this and it is still right and I'm not going to change my mind now. And so um, I think for nominees to refrain uh, from taking uh, positions, uh, even on things that are not directly involved in pending cases, but which might come up and they might have to revisit later. I think it's better that way, uh, even though uh, I'm sure that they have ideas in their minds. I am not uh, suggesting that they haven't thought about it and reached conclusions. I'm sure that Judge Gorsuch knows right now what he thinks about Roe versus Wade. But I, I would prefer, actually, that he keep that to himself until he has a concrete case 
uh, in front of them. It's, it, it, it follows from the idea that we have uh, that the Supreme Court and judges generally don't render advisory opinions. Uh, they wait till a concrete case and then they make their decision after hearing the arguments fully on both sides. So I, I think in the interest of keeping uh, an open mind, I recognize that it's somewhat of a fiction, but I think there's more to be said for um, the, uh, the cautious approach that the nominees take um, than, uh, than many people credit. Uh, thanks so much for that. Um, let us now talk about uh, Chevron. We heard a lot about that uh, case in the confirmation hearings. Uh, I know it's wonky, but really, the listeners, you need to feel comfortable after our podcast and after the hearings that you understand the basic constitutional terms of these debates. And I want you to go read the hearings, if you, the, the, the transcripts. If you feel after our discussion like you haven't gotten the gist of it, um, that was a constitutional law seminar, and even if our guests don't feel it was surprising, there was a lot of substance in it, and your job is to understand the parameters of the debate, and our job is to help you do that. So, um, Eric, uh, there was a lot of debate about Judge Gorsuch's concurrence in a case called Gutierrez, where he seemed to suggest that the Chevron case, which requires judges to defer to administrative agencies on questions of law as well as facts, should be reconsidered, and Judge Gorsuch said reading the Administrative Procedure Act, that he thought that deference uh, on facts might be appropriate, but that it didn't make sense to defer as a matter of law. What's at stake here? How does he differ here from Justice Scalia? And uh, might uh, progressives, uh, as well as uh, libertarians and conservatives, be happy with less Chevron deference in some cases? Well, there would be a lot at stake if there were more than a couple of justices who felt strongly that the Chevron doctrine should be discarded, but there aren't, uh, maybe Justice Thomas. This is certainly a place where, to the best of our knowledge, he and Scalia would have disagreed. Uh, the, the basic idea is what do you do when Congress passes a, a very vague law that doesn't have a lot of content? Let's end air pollution. And then says to the administrative branch, the president, figure out how to end air pollution. And then the EPA drafts rules trying to figure out what ending air pollution means. And then someone is harmed, let's say a car company, by the rules that the EPA adopts. They go to court and they say, these rules should be struck down by judges because they're not consistent with the, the authorizing statute. And the Chevron rule says that if the authorizing statute is unclear, which virtually all of them are, then the agency should get deference. Uh, Gorsuch's objection to this is that, and I, and I agree with this to some degree, Gorsuch's objection is that this gives much too much power to people who aren't elected. Um, you know, when I was at the Department of Justice, Jeff, I actually wrote a law involving the NEA um, about obscenity and, and funding, and no one voted for me. Uh, I actually voted with Michael Paulson, who maybe you've had on this podcast before. But in any event, yes. no, no, no one voted for us, and we wrote a law. So I agree with Judge Gorsuch that, that this Sorry, is so what, what, what did the law say? I'm, I'm curious. We, we, had to define, <laughs> we had to define, Mike, Mike Paulson was very you know, conservative and I'm not. He and I went into a room together to, to draft rules defining obscenity because the Congress had said that National Endowment for the Arts funding could not be given to an artist who produced obscen obscene art. And we had to define obscenity. That became a law of the land. You know, it went into the books and 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 the NEA used it to guide their their the distribution of money. And we didn't. No one voted for us. I have to ask. I have to ask. What was your definition of obscenity? We well, <laughs> if you know Mike, you might suspect that he and I have very different views on, on what are obscene and what what's not obscene. So we um we we adopted the Supreme Court's definition. 
and just said, there's a famous case, you know, the Miller case, and we just adopted that test. And the, by the way, the funny thing about that is the judge ended up striking that down, though. So we, I drafted a law that was ruled unconstitutional, um, but the appellate court reversed, I'm happy to say. In just, any event, just, just for listeners' uh, knowledge, the Miller case says that to be obscene material has to appeal to the prurient interest and be lacking in social value. Kathleen Sullivan of Stanford famously said that means it has to turn you on and gross you out at the same time. That, okay, and, that's we, and that's the law we passed. Back, so to our, just, back to our show. Let me just get very quickly to this. I agree with Judge Gorsuch and many members of the Federalist Society, who I don't normally agree with, that this is a terrible way to run a government, that we should have more control over these administrative agencies, and that Congress should do a much better job of giving them clear direction where possible. Where I disagree with Judge Gorsuch, and very strongly, is that I don't want to transfer that power to unelected life tenure judges. That's even worse than having these administrative agencies have this power, because at least this, they have some expertise, some knowledge. People who work for the CDC, for example, here in Atlanta, I know them well. These are good civil servants who try hard to do the right things for public health. I believe the EPA is staffed with people who in good faith try to help the environment. Same with Commerce and HUD and so on. Um, the last thing I want are judges second guessing the good faith, reasonable decisions of those people. I would rather Congress legislate with more specificity. But when they don't, the answer is not to transfer the power to judges. Thank you so much for that. Um, Mike, you can respond uh, on Chevron, if you want to add to it, but I want to introduce a new topic so we can get through as much as possible, and that is Judge Gorsuch and natural law. You wrote a piece um, on the Originalism blog commenting on uh, some other commentary in the Weekly Standard about claims about Judge Gorsuch and natural law. There were some fascinating exchanges about Judge Gorsuch's intellectual mentor, John Finnis, who'd been involved in a case involving uh, Colorado's uh, uh, amendment, which... Uh, pr prohibited claims on the basis of discrimination against gays and lesbians. So my, my broad question to you is, Judge Gorsuch said that his book, which is so fascinating, which I want listeners to think about reading, was that of a commentator uh, or moral uh, describer rather than a constitutional theorist. Do you agree that the, the, the natural law, moral commentary and constitutional implications can be so clearly separated? And what's your take on how, if in any way, natural law would influence Judge Gorsuch? Um, well, just real quickly on on Chevron first, um, I, I think I'm I'm largely in agreement with what Eric had said. I, I think it, a lot of it comes down to who do you trust more, uh, unelected bureaucrats or unelected judges, and uh, that's not a terribly attractive choice uh, if you're trying to promote democratic values, but it may be the choice um, that we're faced with. I think the the one thing that I would add to it, uh, and I think this uh, reflects some of Judge Gorsuch's concerns about this, is it's not simply a question about uh, putting more power to unelected bureaucrats, but those bureaucrats typically uh, are ones that answer to the president. So uh, one result of this situation where uh, we have... Uh, great deference to administrators is ultimately it creates great deference to the president to the extent that the president wants to intervene in the policy making of the bureaucracy um, and 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 for the purposes of adopting 
um, presidential initiatives, um, largely without um, legislative endorsement, and, and then without any sort of judicial review, any meaningful judicial review either, uh, as a result of the Chevron deference. So um, what it does, um, one effect of it is that it enhances um, uh, executive power uh, significantly, executive, in effect, lawmaking power. And I think that's one thing that um, Judge Gorsuch regards as a problem, as uh, because it it, it is a, um, undermines uh, our our traditional understanding of uh, of separation of powers, and that's something that um, uh, I think is, is of concern not uh, not just to uh, uh, conservatives and libertarians, as Eric says, uh, also perhaps to uh, um, to people on on the other side. Indeed, it's a, of concern principally to the party that doesn't currently hold the presidency, whichever party that may be. Um, but uh, so on the natural law point, um, I, I think that that's um, that's an important question um, because uh, some people, th- excuse me, some people think um, that um, that uh, theories of natural law uh, should have uh, a significant role uh, in constitutional interpretation, um, including uh, a number of originalists and the way they get to that is um, that, that they understand that the framers uh, had an understanding, at least the, um, the especially the framers of the original Constitution and the Bill of Rights uh, in the 18th century, uh, had an appreciation for natural rights, um, and that that their ideas of natural rights um, were built into um, the constitutional language that um, that they wrote and adopted, uh, and as a result, we need to look um, to their understanding. Uh, of uh, of natural rights, um, in order to fully understand the language that they wrote, um, and, and I think that there is um, there is some truth to that. Uh, there is some appropriateness to that um, in the uh, as, as a methodological matter. Uh, as long as we make sure um, that we're what we're trying to talk about, what we're talking about is understanding the concept of natural rights as it existed at the time uh, it was um, it was adopted into the Constitution, because when when you take a concept from um, natural rights, which is uh, in, in a sense a moral idea, um, and enact it, then um, then you're um, putting it in writing, you're crystallizing it and, and establishing it that as as the standard. I think the the difficulty is uh, with natural rights that um, it can open the door to the idea of saying, uh, well, we're going to think about natural rights as we currently understand them. Um, rather than as they were understood and adopted into our constitution. And as soon as you talk about the natural rights as we currently understand them, um, then then you're, I think, in a sense, moving back to the idea um, of uh, judges determining for themselves, not according to, uh, um, to uh, a written standard that's in the constitution, but just determining for themselves uh, what the right morality, what the right policy is. Um, and again, that's what um, Judge Gorsuch says he's trying to avoid, as he said in the hearing over and over again. So I, I think that would not lead him then to uh, a free-floating idea um, of natural rights as interpreted by him. Uh, I think he would reject that idea because it would lead to the, the subjective adjudication that he's trying to avoid. Uh, and so I, I guess in, in conclusion, uh, I would not see. I would not expect him to use 
uh, an open-ended view of natural rights uh, significantly to influence uh, his jurisprudence. But um, that that is uh, a, a bit of speculation on my part because he's he was very cautious about it. But at least it is my view that it is dangerous to use um, an open-ended view of natural rights because then you end up being able to justify whatever outcome you want. And that's exactly what we're trying to avoid. Thank you for that. Um, Eric, are you similarly uh, reassured that Judge Gorsuch would not invoke natural law theories to uh, infer new constitutional rights? It was a really fascinating exchange he had with Senator Durbin, where Senator Durbin was reading some of his mentor, Professor Finnis's more controversial statements, and Judge Gorsuch basically said, I don't agree with everything my Professor State, this is in some ways a reprise of the discussion that Senator Joe Biden had with Senator with uh, then Judge Clarence Thomas when he was nominated. Judge Thomas had expressed intellectual interest in natural law theory, but he insisted he wouldn't let it influence his jurisprudence on the court. So do you uh, agree with Mike that Judge Gorsuch wouldn't either or not? I actually want to bring this conversation back to reality a little bit and then tie it back to something Mike said earlier about originalism, which is directly relevant to the natural rights, natural law question. Mike said earlier that originalism, originalism can decide many, many cases. That is just not true when the universe of cases we're talking about are those in the Supreme Court's docket. On the Supreme Court's docket, every term in terms of constitutional law are roughly, you know, 30 or 40 cases that cannot be decided with originalism. And virtually any case anybody cares about cannot be decided with originalism in the Supreme Court. And therefore, what Judge Gorsuch will do when he is confirmed, and I assume he will be, is the same thing that Scalia, Thomas, Brennan, Marshall, Douglas, and Black all did, is they will, in fact, use natural law to decide difficult questions of balancing rights of the people against actions that the government wants to take. So Erwin Chemerinsky, the dean of UC Irvine Law School and an outspoken uh, critic of originalism had, you know, once said that as practiced by the Supreme Court, constitutional law is nothing less than and nothing more than the aggregate of the subjective value preferences of the justices. And he is correct about that. So when Justice Scalia decides in, uh, in favor of somebody uh, who burnt an American flag and then beats his chest and says, see, I don't like flag burners, but I'm going to let him go free because I'm not going to engage my policy preference. That's not true. His policy preference was his views on speech trump his dislike of flag burners. There were four dissenting opinions in that, votes in that case, including Justice Stevens. And Justice Stevens said, basically, his dislike of flag burners trumped his views on free speech, and Justice Stevens has very strong views on free speech. The end of all of that is when we're talking about speech and commerce and abortion and affirmative action and guns and killing American citizens in Yemen eating lunch, all of those difficult issues require the justices to bring to the table their experiences, their politics, their values, their upbringing, their readings, and that inevitably leads to a natural law type of decision-making unless we make them stick to a strong presumption of validity. But as I said earlier, no Supreme Court justice has ever had a strong deferential attitude towards state and federal legislatures. So the long and short of it is Judge Gorsuch will use natural law the same way they all do, um, and it's inevitable that they will do so. Uh, Mike, last question. A big um, theme was would Judge Gorsuch check 
President Trump, uh, if he were to exceed his executive power, using executive orders and otherwise, uh, Judge Gorsuch was quite passionate about the need for an independent judiciary to enforce constitutional limitations on the president and Congress. Uh, were you persuaded? And do you believe he's more likely to check President Trump than Justice Scalia would have been? Uh, I, I think he will be uh, likely to check President Trump. I, I would not say that he'd be more likely to than Justice Scalia, because Justice Scalia uh, was quite willing to uh, to check executive power when, when he thought it was appropriate. I, I think that a, a problem with the idea of... Uh, a strong presumption of constitutionality uh, that's been advanced is it doesn't allow a role uh, of checking because um, most of the time uh, you will end up with uh, deference to um, an enacted an enactment from Congress, but also uh, an action by the executive branch. And it, a large number of cases uh, that come before the court are challenges to executive actions uh, as well as challenges to constitutionally constitutionality of statutes. Uh, so if you have a presumption of constitutionality, you don't get this checking function. And I do think that the checking function is something that is um, embedded in our idea of separation of powers, uh, going all the way back um, to the understanding at the time the Constitution was adopted, expressed in the Federalists by uh, Hamilton, among others, uh, and expressed in the understanding of the time uh, in, in, the, um, in the ratification debates and in the uh, uh, in the drafting debates, uh, where they talked about um, the need for uh, courts, among others, uh, to enforce this, the uh, um, the rules that were laid down in the Constitution against the um, the political branches, and so I, I think that Judge Gorsuch takes that to heart. I think it's it's a it's an element of his critique of Chevron that we talked about earlier, um, that Chevron takes judges out of this uh, checking. Function And so I, I think he believes uh, strongly in the idea of uh, separation of powers, as Justice Scalia did. Uh, so I think you will see him um, uh, taking a, a strong position on that. And so I, I guess I have confidence um, that, that uh, um, his commitment to uh, originalism uh, plays into his commitment to uh, an independent judiciary that, among other things, um, strong stands up to the executive branch. Thanks so much for that. Um, Eric, would Judge Gorsuch be uh, more or less likely than Justice Scalia to check President Trump? I think Gorsuch will check President Trump where appropriate. I think Scalia would have done it as well. I think, frankly, they all will except possibly Justice Thomas. Uh, but, I, but, I, but I actually think Gorsuch, I have no doubt that he will um, not be intimidated in any way, shape, or form. By, by the president's um, bombasticness. I want to say one thing in response to Mike. Um, if we're not going to have a, presumption, a strong presumption of validity, then we are going to have the justices' preferences playing a major role. We can't have it both ways. We should either admit that the justices' preferences will play a major role, and that is, the, that is American history, or we should do what Alexander Hamilton wanted us to do in the Federalist Number 78, which I recommend all the listeners go to, because what Alexander Hamilton actually said was that justices and judges should strike down laws when they are at an irreconcilable variance with the Constitution. And that phrase, irreconcilable variance, is Alexander Hamilton's phrase. And I do not think that he or John Marshall or Thomas Jefferson or any of them anticipated 
the degree of judicial involvement in public policy issues that our country has come to expect from the Supreme Court. So without saying whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, either we have a strong presumption of validity, and then the preferences can really take a back seat, or the justices' preferences will play an incredibly dominant role, and we should be honest about that. What we should not do is pretend that the justices' preferences don't play a major role in constitutional interpretation. Great. Thank you so much for that, gentlemen. It is time for closing statements. I'm not going to ask you about the politics, but about the substantive constitutional effect of a Gorsuch nomination. Uh, Mike Ramsey, in what ways is Judge Gorsuch, if he's confirmed, likely to be different than Justice Scalia on the Supreme Court? I think the big difference, and this is an ele- there's an element of speculation here because I don't know Judge Gorsuch personally at all. I only really know him from what I've seen uh, in the hearings uh, and a little bit that I've heard. But my my uh, my sense of him is um, that he will be a consensus builder. Uh, and as we know, uh, Justice Scalia, uh, for all the many great things he did for the Supreme Court, um, was not a consensus builder. Uh, Justice Scalia staked out his strong positions um, and he let people know uh, what they were. Um, He made them very clear and he made them as pure as he could. Uh, And he did achieve some success uh, in putting together majority opinions in some significant areas, more, I think, than he's sometimes credited with. Um, But at the same time, uh, he he is best known for his dissents and his concurrences. Uh, He's not known uh, for someone who, uh, who built a court around him. Um, I think that, um, judge Gorsuch strikes me, uh, as, as the sort of person who, uh, is more going to be looking, um, to, to build majorities. Um, and I don't mean that, uh, in, in a negative way at all. Uh, not, not that he would compromise because he also strikes me as someone with, with very deep principles. So I, I don't think that he would compromise his principles, but I do think that he would be looking for ways um, to, to build majorities uh, that, that Scalia um, did not. Uh, and so I, I think it's a, a difference in temperament, uh, and, and I think it's a difference in, in ultimate goal, because uh, I think uh, for Scalia, the, the majority was secondary. Um, the, the principle was primary. Um, and I think with, uh, um, with Gorsuch, um, what, what I would expect to see um, is that, that the two are not, not that, um, that majorities are, are elevated above principle, um, but, but they're given equal billing in a sense that, uh, um, we, we advance, that he will try to advance his principles, um, through majority opinions, uh, and through being in majorities, through bringing together majorities. Uh, and, and so I think that, that will be a, uh, that is my prediction for, for what is, uh, what is going to change. It is going to be a change in temperament. Thank you so much for that. Um, Eric, last word to you. In what ways do you think Justice Gorsuch, if he's confirmed, is likely to be different than Justice Scalia? I really agree with Mike. That was um, typically insightful. <laughs> uh, uh, I think the big difference is going to be that that Gorsuch will want to bring people into the fold to a degree Scalia did not, and he has the people's skills to do it. Um, I think Justice Scalia alienated Kennedy and O'Connor very early on, and it played a major role, a major role in the dynamic at the Supreme Court. I think Judge Gorsuch is a much more um, uh, savvy uh, person when it comes to dealing with with disagreement and and, and people skills. And and I'll say one other thing. I think 
where they're, where they're similar and where it's going to be important is I hope and I think Gorsuch is going to take precedent very seriously. And I do think there were times when Justice Scalia took precedent very seriously, not as often as I would like, but there were times, much more than Justice Thomas, for example. I think Gorsuch would be even more serious about precedent than Justice Scalia. And really was, and, and really assuming that, that, there's, that, that there's some more changes in the court, and there will be obviously over time, how Gorsuch views precedent is going to be a major, major issue to be followed by everybody in the years ahead. And on precedent, I think he and Scalia actually had more in common than different, but I do think he will take precedent more seriously. Thank you so much, Eric Siegel and Mike Ramsey, for a vigorous, illuminating, and important discussion about the constitutional implications of the Gorsuch nomination. We the People listeners, uh, you are all lovers of constitutional learning and uh, what I would like you to do is make sure you understand the basic issues of constitutional law that were being debated in the Gorsuch hearings, from Chevron deference to originalism to separation of powers. And if there are technical questions that still uh, are stopping you up, write to me at the Constitution Center, Jay, Jay Rosen at constitutioncenter.org. The great constitutional prep team and I will try to answer your questions, and I just want you to feel at this stage in your constitutional journey that you're comfortable with these really important basic principles that we're seeing debated before the nation. Eric, Mike, thank you so much for joining. Thanks, Jeff. Really happy to be here. Thanks a lot. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Tom Donald. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. Sign up to receive Constitution Weekly, our really great email roundup of constitutional news and debate. It's at bit.ly forward slash Constitution Weekly. If you haven't signed up yet, please do because it's got all of our content in one thrilling email. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support. We rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. Listeners, that means if you're not a member yet, become a member. And the point isn't to give any more money than you're able to, although we do need your support because that's the way we work. But I just want you to go online, sign up, become a member, get Constitution Weekly, be a member of the Constitution Center family. You are part of this great family of lifelong learners about the Constitution, and you can signal that by joining the National Constitution Center. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.